Hey there, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Janine, and this is Get the Funk Out. Standing by to join us is author Susan Meisner. She's written her latest book, which is As Bright as Heaven. Here's a little bit about Susan's latest book. It's a sweeping historical novel about one American family's fight to survive when the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic hits their city. It's my pleasure to welcome to this week's show author Susan Meisner. Hi, Susan. Hi there. I was really intrigued by your book. I was wondering if you'd tell the listeners a little bit about it. Sure. It's historical fiction, and it's set mainly um, during the time of the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. Mm -hmm. And then also um, a few years later, um, after the characters have matured a little bit and they're kind of um, living with the aftermath of what they experienced, uh, the the narrators of the story are a mother and, and three daughters, and the daughters are a little bit young when the flu hits. And, of course, as they mature, they bring that experience with them into their adult years. Now, why was this story important for you to tell? You know, when I was researching it, I didn't know anything really about Spanish flu other than I, I knew that there had been a pandemic, and mm-hmm. it had happened around the time of World War I. Um, but when I started researching it as a possible backdrop for a story, I was just amazed how quickly it's been forgotten when you consider that um, it's the second most deadly pandemic of all time. Some people say it's worse than the Black Death of medieval times. And 50 million people died of wow. Spanish flu, which is, an, which is it's a staggering yes. number, just, just jaw-dropping number of people. And it's hard to find a family living today that can't trace back one family member in their past who died of Spanish flu. And so I feel like it's a story that needed to be told so that we don't forget. Uh, I think 50 million people deserve to be remembered in some way, and perhaps um, story is just one way to do that. Right. Now, growing up, did you always gravitate towards writing, or was this something you discovered later on? You know, I think it's always been part of my DNA. Um, my mom said, has often told me that I was writing little poems and stories. Um, even be- yeah, <laughs> even before I could actually write the alphabet, I was making up stories and poems in the back seat of the car. And then in elementary school, I, I was writing little stories and poems. And in high school, I had a wonderful English teacher who saw promise in me. And um, I didn't really heed his advice when I was younger. Um, he, he told me I had the gift of writing and I should nurture it and consider it as a career. But I was I was thinking it was my hobby, not a career. And so I didn't really do a lot with my writing until my um, 30s when I became a, a newspaper um, reporter, which okay. was great. I loved that. I was finally tuning in to what I'd been kind of wired to do from the beginning. But it wasn't until my 40s that I tried novel writing, which is what I really wanted to do, and realized it had been an itch from the very beginning. And um, it's my lane now, and I couldn't be more at home in it. I feel like you're a mom, aren't you? I'm, I was reading your I am. Mom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, sometimes... Not only writing, but writing fiction, it's a great way to just, it's a form of creative escapism in in a great, great way. It is. And I think not only is story a way to allow us to kind of step into the shoes of the hero, it allows us to imagine what we would do if our lives were different. Mm -hmm. I think whenever we read fiction, and maybe even nonfiction too, is we can't help but place ourselves in the role of the of the main character, you know, wondering, if that was me, what would I do? And so it, it allows us to live other lives, um, contemplate um, how our um, present reality might be different if we had been forced to make different choices, or if we'd been born in a different time, or if we had to um, go through something that um, ordinary people just like us had to go through. 
and um, you know they found strength they didn't know they had, or they rose to a, a, an occasion that um, kind of became life defining for them, or it changed the scope of their future. All of those things, I think, when you read um, a story, they allow you to kind of um, imagine um, a different a different reality. Sure. Now the name of my show is Get the Funk Out. So I'm going to ask you some questions because a lot of listeners are writers. They're aspiring writers. Um, it's tough. This is a tough industry. How do you stay positive in an industry that where you see, you know, rejections at times? It's true that there is uh, no lack of rejection when you have a creative talent and you offer it up to the world. Sometimes it's not someone, you know, someone who has the power to uh, make it global or give you a voice that's larger than just your own. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't happen for you, and it can it can get very depressing if you're looking for that for validation. So I always say, don't look for publication for validation. Um, it's great to be published because then you do have a way of getting your whatever it is you want to say to the world. You have a, it's an easier way of getting it um, listened to. But it's not it doesn't what make you a, it's not what makes you a writer. Right. Uh, writing makes you a writer, and it's hard to remember that when your goal is to be published or to get the the book that you've written and maybe published yourself to get it out there, and you're having trouble making all of that happen. If you write, you're a writer. Continue to hone that skill. It does get better the more you do it. It's just like swimming laps in a pool. Um, a lot of people who are great swimmers swim a lot of laps when no one is watching. Yes. Um, but those, <laughs> those laps are important. They build your muscle, your swimming muscles, just like um, writing when no one's listening at the moment. Um, exercises your writing muscles. So stay the course. You know, Keep at it and keep looking for opportunities because they may show up when you're least expecting them. Right. You know, that's great advice because I have heard stories of, you know, people get published on, let's say, Huffington Post or, you know, Washington Post, and and people also submit and they get rejection after rejection. Mm-hmm. They feel like they need that as the path to build their profile as an author. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you say, you know, if people say, you know, what do I do as far as, like, getting myself out there? It's true that having um, been published before does help you get published again. Mm-hmm. Um, that is true. But there are so many different ways to get your voice out there now that weren't available, say, 30 years ago. Anybody can start a blog, and you can create a really nice one right. that's right at the heart of what you want to say to the world, and no one can prevent you, can prevent you from saying it. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would say if you're not finding success in any other avenue, um, you can start your own blog. No one can stop you there, and Definitely. you are um, you have the freedom then to say what you need to say and begin building your audience. That can be hard, building an audience. There's a lot of blogs out there. But, um, you know, podcasts are another way. You know, writers don't just write. We also have, you know, a a voice, like I'm talking to you right now. So a writer can start a podcast, which are very popular right now. Yes. And build their audience that way, and then direct those listeners to their website, and then maybe have some free material on their website, because um, consumers like to be ushered in with some free things to get to know you a little bit. So if you offer free things on your website, you know, like an essay or, you know, a 50-page PDF or something, it it allows readers to find you and try you out before committing to, like, spending, you know, money um, when they're not familiar with you quite yet. Sure. So what I hear you saying is pretty much don't just do one thing. Mm -hmm. Try to share what you do in other forms of media. Exactly. And to um, engage with other people on, on, on social media so that if you've got something to say, um, you should be following people who are saying um, 
variations of the same thing because they're part of your tribe and yes. their their readers and their listeners are going to be your readers and listeners. So you need to be, you need to be part of the conversation before you're actually driving the conversation. You need to be in it and get you know get known for being part of the conversation so that when you do finally get that lucky break, uh, you're not a complete stranger. Yeah. No. Great advice. So back to your book. Uh, how did you come up with the title "As Bright as Heaven"? Well, the book started out with a different title. It was called "Under the Canopy of Heaven," which I still love. It's a very, like um, it's a very kind of yeah poetic kind of um, a title that kind of it suggests something larger than what it is. Mm-hmm. And it also offered, I think, a little glimmer of hope because heaven is a hopeful word, yeah. and it is Spanish flu. It was terrible. Many many people died. So I don't sugarcoat it in the book. But I did want there to be. Um, hope at the end um, of it. Um, that title seemed a little bit too long, and so sales and marketing um, asked me to shape a, a, a shorter title. And so As Bright as, as Heaven is kind of a reiteration of that, but it's also a line spoken by one of the characters. So readers who read the book are going to see um, the title of the book spoken by one of the characters, and it's kind of used to um, key in the, the family name, the, the name of the family in the book is they're the Bright family, that is their last name, Bright. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of a play on words there as they're um, dealing with, uh, you know, death, the, the family, um, the dad is an undertaker. So they're, they're seeing the Spanish flu as it hits Philadelphia in a very unique way. And they're probably seeing um, more than the average person is seeing. And, of course, they're processing all of it and and narrating the story for the for the reader. And, um, and because it deals so much with, um, you know, the fact that we're mortal, Yes. This idea that um, heaven uh, um, is a, a bright place that awaits us at the end of our lives. That yes. kind of gives the book some hope. Yeah, it's a positive uh, mm-hmm. turn to it. Now, as far as your writing process, uh, when you were writing this book, is it similar to your other books? I mean, do you have a clear outline, or do you let the characters kind of evolve, and then you take new directions? It's kind of a blend of both of those things. I am an outliner. I would say I outline by the seat of my pants, <laughs> which really just means that I begin with an outline. I imagine how I think the story is going to go. And I do that because it um, keeps me from um, opening up the, you know, the document and having nowhere to go. So I, I have kind of a map for each day because I have an idea of where I think these characters are going to go because I've imagined it beforehand. But as I'm writing, things will change or other scenarios will present themselves to me that I hadn't thought of when I was, you know, planning the book before I'd even started it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always open to discovery, and I'm always open to having, um, you know, the characters kind of, um, they kind of come alive in my head, and it does seem like maybe that they're suggesting things to me, but it's really just my own creative mind, just um, imagining those characters in the exact situation they're in, right. and and the fact that things can change. You know, we think we think our lives are going one direction, and you know how things can just change oh, you know, yeah. overnight. Yes. And that happens with the story. The, the, the outline to it can change. So I plot, but I'm also open to um, that intuitive process that um, takes over when we write. I just want to tell the listeners that the book is told from the multiple perspectives of Pauline and her three daughters, Evelyn, Maggie, and Willa. It's basically a testament to the women's strength and resilience as they hold their family together. Is that right? I would say so, yes. Yeah. They... Um, they because the daughters are um, what I would call um, in very impressionable ages, you know, they're 15, 13, and 7 when they experience this. And they're all living above the funeral home, um, you know, with, with the dad who's an undertaker. Um, but, but even though they're um, witnessing the same event, they're not telling it the same way. You know, their ages and their temperaments and personalities are going to shape um, how they tell the story for the reader. And I think, you know, each, each of them in their own way, and the mom too, 
are coming to terms with the fact that we're mortal Mm -hmm. and we're fragile. And neither one of those things are bad in and of themselves. I think the fact that we're mortal and fragile kind of adds to the the idea that life is precious. It's what makes life precious, the fact that we're mortal. And being fragile is not necessarily a bad thing. It does mean that we will um, be outdone by forces greater than ourselves sometimes. But the fact that we're fragile also means that we're capable of loving, I think, if we were made of stone, as one of the characters says, yes. impervious to outside forces. I don't know if we'd be, able, we'd be capable of loving the way we do. And that's what makes life wonderful. Mm, that's beautiful. Without giving too much away, is there anything you would like to share with the listeners about the book? Well, again, it is about a very um, terrible event in our history. Um, Spanish flu was awful. It had a mortality rate of one in five. And... and Again, I don't sugarcoat it in the book, so there. I, I hear from readers that you're going to need a few tissues when you read the book. Right. That said, yes. I still feel like it's a celebration of life and not so much, a, you know, a description of how terrible one particular disease was. Mm-hmm. I think um, the conversations that the narrators, these girls and their mom, have with the reader affirms um, life and the fact that um, we we get to share it with people. You know, this, this this idea that we get to love and be loved during our existence here, I think is what makes life um, just incredibly beautiful. And uh, there's, for those uh, listeners that like the use of metaphor, I do employ the use of butterflies in the book to just kind of remind the reader that, you know, even the butterflies have a very, very short lifespan. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly short. They're beautiful. And it it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be here just because their lives are short. That is so true. You know, I'm actually thinking because we grow milkweed and we have a lot of monarch mm. butterflies in our backyard, so great analogy. Where can people find out more about you? Well, I have a website. It's just myname.com, so it's Susan Meisner, M-E-I-S-S-N-E-R.com. That's my website. And I'm on Facebook and um, Twitter and Instagram, so those are all places, depending on what your listeners like to hang out on. I'm on all of those platforms. I love hearing from people. Perfect. I'm listening to you talk about the book, and I'm thinking, wow, I wonder what it, what it must have felt like when you finished this book. It's almost like watching a really powerful movie. It is like that, and there is sort of a, um, a relief, I guess, when it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do want all of my books to have um, hope at the end in some kind of way. It doesn't mean that everything's tied up in a nice, neat bow, happily ever after. But I do want the um, readers to feel like the characters can be happy again. Maybe not happily ever after. That's not usually how life is. Right. But they can move on from sadness and find happiness again. It can happen. And I think that's part of the resiliency of the human spirit is that we, um, we recognize death. We mourn um, our losses. But then we, um, we learn how to get up the next morning and keep breathing and, and finding new ways to... Um, to move, move forward, taking all the love that we had for that person with us. That's the great thing. We, we get to keep all that love. Mm-hmm. And that, that love might make it painful in the grieving process. But in the end, when the, when the grief part is over, the memories you get to keep. You know, I'm smiling because that's how I named my show, Get the Funk Out, because we uh-huh. all go through these challenging times, and I lost a friend. And mm-hmm. I created the show as a way to... Uh, focus on, you know, we all go through these tough, challenging times, but through that storm, we become more resilient, we have more grit, and we learn. I totally agree. I mean, you know, life can be, can be hard. I think that's a line from the book, too, is that life can be incredibly hard, but um, it's also incredibly beautiful. And, you know, you wouldn't want to have uh, neither one. I mean, if you, right. 
if, if it's going to be incredibly beautiful, that means it's juxtaposed against the times where it's incredibly hard. And yes. I, think, I think it's okay. It sure is. Susan, thank you so much for calling in. This has been wonderful. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. If you missed any part of our conversation, it is up on the show blog, getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. And if you want to follow the show, I am on Twitter at moms, M-O-M-Z underscore rock.